Hello, my beautiful beanies, and welcome to The Bean for Thursday. First with yesterday's news, I and Glenn ZB, we're looking back at Wednesday. Uh, this Wellington Town Hall strengthening, how's it got so out of control? Uh, the speed limits in Auckland, uh, the council, yeah, how they, uh, they got so out of control. Um, uh, are the kids all right? And speaking of kids, why do bands then keep drafting them into... Their, their kids into their bands uh, but before any of that the main zeal uh, creditors will they ever be paid the cash the retained payments gave firms was enough to see them scrape through tough times when banks were putting the squeeze on which is a totally warped way of seeing things it's not their money it's not their money to use they shouldn't be buffering and eking out an existence and trying to squeeze themselves through if the banks aren't giving money, using other people's money. From the time the subbies complete the work, that money no longer belongs to the developer and they have to see it like that. It's like the money owed to the tax department. Every time I do a job outside of this one, I don't look at the amount I'm being paid as the amount I'll be getting. I lop a third off the top. That belongs to the IRD, it's not mine. Going into that job with the mindset means I know how much I'll really be earning, not what it says on paper I'm getting paid. So the developers, the construction companies need to change their mindset. That is not their money. That is money that is owed to subbies and they cannot use it to play the banks. Because if you're playing the banks, you're playing fast and loose with people's livelihoods. I do not know how some of those developers, the developers who've gone under, and there have been many, can lie straight in bed at night knowing that they've put honest, hard-working men and women under as a result of their incompetence or their hubris or their greed. If the protection afforded subbies through the law isn't sufficient, then beef it up, give them teeth. We have to do the right thing by them. Interesting uh, pronunciation of hubris there. Um, it's always hard, isn't it? The, the diphthongs and things. Hubris, I think she said. The, I'm a hubris, but I don't say tissue. So, sort of forgotten what we were talking about. So let's move on to the uh, Wellington Town Hall strengthening. Uh, here is uh, Justin Lester talking to Larry Williams about that. Geez, it's really blowing the budget. So we have 112 million. Is that it, or do you expect it to rise again? That's the tender price. Now, there's always a risk around construction projects when you actually get beneath the ground. When you're trying to base isolate a heritage building built on reclaimed land, yeah, there's a risk it could go up. But we go into that with eyes wide open. You well, do you? You said that's the tender price. The budget for this was about forty-three million, wasn't it, back in twenty twelve? No, that's back in twenty twelve with a different concept, uh, with a different type of uh, building uh, being realised as well. So, if you go back then, that looked at a, a much reduced uh, seismic strengthening project, not including base isolation. And what we've actually decided is, if we want to secure this building for the next hundred years, let's not do a half pie measure and have to have the city come back in 20 or 30 years' time and do it again at a similar cost. So we said, let's do it once, let's do it properly, and let's base isolate, like the Papa is. And, uh, and I also just want to point out, in 1992, the building was reopened after being strengthened. Look, we're back here, what, 27 uh, years later. Uh, so we don't want to have to do this again. Right, but the price then went to $93 million, didn't it? Now you're at 112 and you're no, not, no, so it, you're it, not it, sure it, that's it, going to... Original, an original budget, yeah. based on, but we hadn't been out to tender at that point in time. So uh, there's quite a difference between a budget and a tender price. Right, so well. does it stop at $112 million? Uh, look, We've got a contingency built in. So no, no, it's a money pit. 
They should have knocked it down and said it again, like the sounds of things. Uh, or just built a cardboard one, like the cathedral in Christchurch. Is that what happened there? I can't remember what happened there. Yeah. Uh, let's. Uh, and if, so, if Wellington and Council Chaos. Uh, what to Auckland Council Chaos? Uh, they want the speed limits to be lower than ever in Auckland. What does Andrew Dickens think? You know, this isn't a crazy idea. New York. Citywide speed limit in New York. Do you know what it is? New York. You know, you've seen all the pictures in the movies and you see those big wide roads one way and you see all the yellow cabs and all that and they're like three or four or five lanes wide and, you know, uh, you've seen the movies and all that sort of stuff. What do you think the uh, speed limit is in New York? It's 40k citywide. In all of New York, unless you're on the freeways... You have to go 40k. They brought that back in, uh, they brought that in in 2014. They had a 28% reduction in road fatalities over the next four years and a 45% reduction in pedestrian fatalities over the next four years. So it works. What's the speed limit in London? What do you think the speed limit is in London? Speed limit in London is 32 kilometres an hour or 20 miles per hour on a third of all their streets. A third of them. London. And when they, they brought that in, in 2014, they saw a 6% reduction in vulnerable road user trauma. Here's the opposite. Um, Israel increased their open speed limit from 90k to 100k in 1988. In the six years following, uh, 347 people more uh, died than before. You know, Bristol, 32k is the speed limit right across the whole city. Um, and there are more it's, it always just seems like a crazy moot point this discussion because the chances of you actually going anywhere near the speed limit if you're trying to get from one bit of Auckland to another are so low I don't even know why we're talking about it um, now kids should parents just stay out of their way uh, by the time they Certainly by the time they get into their late teens. Yes, I could march up to the school and demand some human rights for them. I could contest the school rules. I could inject myself into the debate. But to what end? They attend a school where the rules are clearly laid out day one. The penalties for breaching them were also clear. Like it or not, short hair is a school policy and one the school vigorously enforces. To make a special case of your child is not necessarily helping them learn to live within boundaries, rules and structures. And where do you draw the line? At what point do you stop fighting their battles or lodging complaints on their behalf? Once they enter the workplace and there's a rule about, I don't know, punctuality or meeting attendance, for example, will you still be marching in and protesting your child should be exempt? Will your child have learned to operate within various environments which don't always suit them? Customising rules and procedures around individual children, while in theory all very nice, doesn't work out here in the real world. The kids you're protecting from having to scrub off their fake tan will one day have to catch buses with weirdos, encounter strange behaviours at work offices, engage with people they don't necessarily like. They'll be in situations which don't suit them. And that's actually good for them. It teaches resilience. Learning to navigate all that, to accept and appreciate diversity and understand that the world is just a little bit bigger than you and your fresh spray tan will actually help them in the long term. Running up to school, shouting human rights and fighting their battles will not. Yeah, I mean, really, 
I, I, mean, I agree with that. And my approach with, when my kids have got those sorts of issues is to say, um, go away and let me carry on melting cheese on things and watching Netflix. Uh, we're going to finish up here uh, talking about the kids of famous band members making their way into those famous bands. Marcus is an impressed. The Eagles is on again tonight if you're just parking your car and walking towards Vector. Hope it goes well for you. Spoke to the boss. He enjoyed it. Someone's son singing. That's the sad thing, you know. Not only are the bands touring until they die, but they're also blooding the next generation at the same time. The Eagles' son was singing. Phil Collins' son was drumming. So these damn, these damn bands, once the singers and the musicians die, the children will be carrying on the legacy. It's like a musical monarchy. Flip. I don't know if that's good or bad, but if you are heading to the Eagles, I hope it goes well for you. They say the average age is really, really old. In fact, the boss, I don't really go, because when I talk to the boss, it's supposed to be confidential, but he did say that the person behind him said, do you mind not moving so much? My husband's just had an operation on his knees. (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) Someone said on Facebook the average age was 62. The other person said on Facebook the average age was 67. No, ironically, I reckon uh, online music streaming has made young people more aware of old people's music and vice versa uh, because you're not always in control of the songs that come up. In one minute, you might be listening to Ariana Grande and then the next minute, you might be listening to the Eagles. And the kids might like that song, regardless of the condition of their knees. Again, Glenn ZB, you've got to stop bringing up stuff that's not really relevant. Or is that why you're listening? Uh, if you still are listening, thank you very much. That has been News Talk ZB, another 10 minutes worth or so. Uh, we'll see you back here again for your daily dose for tomorrow.